Nice. It's, um, yeah, it's good to be back. It's good to be able to jump back into it. Um, we're going to be going back into Revelation uh, today. And a few weeks ago, I have good news for you. A few weeks ago, I started off with this heavy bomb drop of being like, hey, guys, welcome to church. Let's talk about hell. Yippee! right? So fortunately, we have made it past that. And in the book of Revelation, we've been going through this. If you're a visitor, we've been going through this last book of the Bible since May. And we are coming up to the very, very end. And it's with great joy that rather than saying we need to talk about hell today, um, it's with great joy that I get to say today we get to talk about heaven. (laughs) Way much better. What I'd love to know before we jump in is when you think about heaven, what comes to your mind? Like when you're thinking about heaven, what are the images, whether good or bad, what are the images that come to your brain? Shout them out. Let me hear them. I, I want to hear what clouds, golden gates. Yep. Jesus is there. That's hopefully that is included, right? Um, yep. Anything else? What else? What? Half an hour of silence. It does happen in the book of Revelation. Hopefully not heaven is not silent all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No more pain or sickness. Yep, fantastic. What else? Unlimited bacon. I don't know where that scripture is, but I like it. Um, Yeah, way down at the back. Mike, what you got? (laughs) Just like buff, like just built, just like Arnold Schwarzenegger with blonde hair. Right, I got you. I'm with you. Yep, other thoughts? Yeah, yeah. Joy and worship. Yep, on the couch. Endless stream of water. Yep, that's good. You're picking it up from Revelation. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Eternity, which is both a lovely. Yeah, and eternity is something that, if you think about it for too long, begins to become overwhelming as you're like, I don't know how to process this, right? Right? I mean, most of those are positive things. Let me go against the grain. Does anyone have any of those images of heaven that they're not stoked about? Yeah, any? Oh, the lamb with the blood. <laughs> yep, that's classic revelation image. Judgment in heaven. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so, so for me growing up, one of, my, one of the things that I always heard about heaven, there's lots of cool things, eh? Like it's this perfect paradise where we project all the most amazing things and we put it on this place and assume we'll one day get there, hopefully, right? Um, the other thing I often heard, and I grew up in a missionary family in a Pentecostal Assemblies of God church, and one of the things that was commonly said was that when we think about heaven, it's this eternal worship service as we're like forever worshiping God, right? Which I think the pastor meant as a really lovely thing. But as an eight-year-old kid who went to church four nights a week, I thought, oh God, no, I can't, I can't do it. You know, what if, what if does, is anyone, anyone resol- like that with me? Like, yeah, sure, we like a lot of ideas about heaven. Anyone else kind of terrified because it sounds lame sometimes? Like, yeah, right? One of the, some of you are like, I'm ready for church all day. And I'm like, good for you. You should be a pastor, not me. Um, I'm not, I do not love church that much that I want to be in a place like this for all eternity. You guys are great, but no, bag's not for me. Um, one of the challenges about heaven is that so much of our ideas around it are imported from our culture. They've thousands and thousands of years we've thought about things and we try and force it into this idea of heaven. And often you can get really confused on what is good, what isn't good, what's the even point of it. And some of you, if, if we're honest... Yeah, we like the idea of heaven, but we're also kind of like, what's the point? Life's hard now. 
What good is it to just have an insurance policy for when I die, when I'm struggling to get through the day to day now? And heaven can feel like this pie in the sky dream that doesn't connect with anything. Hopefully we can engage with some of those things. But bef before we do that, I just wanna say something that just made me really happy. Um, this is a guy named N.T. Wright. He is a world-leading world -leading, uh, scholar and theologian. He's written over 70 books on theology and the New Testament. He is one of the smartest church leaders alive. And I came across this quote when I was prepping for today, and I wanna share it with you. It doesn't have to do with the sermon, it just makes me happy. Um, he says this, and we're looking at these passages today. We, arrive, we now arrive at the last and perhaps greatest image of new creation, of cosmic renewal in the whole Bible. This scene set out in Revelation 21 and 22 is not well enough known or pondered, perhaps because in order to earn the right to read it, one should really read the rest of Revelation first, which proves too daunting for many. I read that and I thought, not for Golden Sands Baptist. Just, I, does anyone else feel proud? N.T. Wright is like, look, all the world can't hack it. And I'm like, ha, ah, we did. We're bloodied and bruised and we're sick of the book, but we made it. Um, so I just want to encourage you. We are down to the very last few verses in this crazy book. Well done. Honestly, this is not an easy journey. This is not an easy book. It's very weird. It's bloody. It's uncomfortable. But having gone through that journey, we are now stand with only a few people who've actually read the whole book to finally understand when Revelation is talking about the new heavens and the new earth, what does it mean? So good on you guys. It just made me happy that N.T. Wright thinks we're legit. Um, so let's read our verse for today. Um, we're going to be in Revelation 21, if you want to get out your Bibles or phones, Revelation 21. And uh, we'll have it up on the screen. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 9 uh, today. And can I encourage you, again, like as we always do, get into imagining what this looks like. Visualize it. Try and enter into the text as it's read out today. So let's listen together. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, 
the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars. They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. All right. Um, what stuck out? I'd love to hear your impressions. I know it takes a hard left turn at the end there. You're like, this is lovely. Oh, death, right. So we're going to deal with that last verse in a bit. But what stuck out to you as you heard that passage? Is there anything that was moving? I think this is one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture we have in our Bible. Um, anything that stuck out to anyone as it was being read? God finally being with us, eh? God dwelling, making his home with us, finally. Yeah, 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 incredible. Anything else? No sea. Yeah, which is really sad for New Zealanders. Honestly, I've, I've figured out something about your culture. The two cities that you hate, Palmy, Palmy North and Hamilton, right? Like popular culture, you guys, very mean to those cities. I like them, but those two cities, I figured out what connects them. They're not on the ocean. That's why no one likes them. You New Zealanders, you guys love the sea. You stuff you all. Uh, all right. Um, but there's no sea. What's going on there? Again, this is apocalyptic literature, so it's doing some different things. Anything else that stuck out? I just love that verse of when Jesus, when God finally comes, when he wipes away every tear from every eye, there is no more death. No more mourning or crying or pain. Jesus says, it is done. Oh, that's a verse you could listen to more often. So we're going to walk through this. But do you notice something that's interesting? In, in this first verse, as it begins to describe heaven, it doesn't fit with a lot of our ideas of popular culture. If you get close, if you really dig down into it, of like everything just being magically perfect, having infinite bacon, it doesn't talk about that. There's no angels mentioned here in this first passage. It's quite different, eh? And it's trying to tell a really specific story. And the first thing that you have to remember, we've talked about it a lot, but this book is written, it's an apocalyptic book. It's a style of literature that was popular about 2,000 years ago where they use metaphors and crazy language to try and fit everything together. So a great example of that is the sea. Why is there no longer any sea when we really like it? Most of us are fond of being out on the ocean. In Revelation, the sea serves a really specific purpose. Particularly in biblical theology, the big ocean usually was always connected as a place of chaos. It was the deep. There was mysterious beings there that could kill, like the Leviathan. Um, the dragon, which is kind of like the main antagonist, the enemy of this book, comes out from the water, from the sea. And when he tries to attack God's people, he spews water from his mouth. The sea in Genesis is this chaotic place that God brings order out of it. And so this idea of there's no longer any sea, in just the last passage, the sea gave up all of its dead from all those who died at sea. So when it's saying there's no longer any sea, it's using apocalyptic language to say the forces of chaos are gone. gone. The places where death could linger, the places where people could be hurt and wounded are no more. The sea is taken away and now there's only peace. Chaos is gone and God's order comes in. The other thing you'll notice is it, heaven 
and earth. It talks about this language, but it uses that language in a really specific way. And most importantly, have you noticed the direction? So directions matter, right? Most people know directions matter. One of my biggest pet peeves, um, when I was living in the UK a few years ago, I was the only guy in the band that I was in that had a driver's license because the other guys were lazy and bad drivers. And so it fell down to me to do all the driving. And we would go and play these shows in all these tiny little lanes in London. And we had no idea how to get there. And so I usually needed a navigator to help me find my way through. Now, this was right about the time that Google Maps had just come out on a smartphone where you could actually have like a live GPS with you on your phone. And in our band, I had worked out who the good navigator was and who was never allowed to sit in that seat. So I had a, a buddy named Lalo. He was this big Mexican guy. He was our drummer. He actually wasn't a bad navigator except for the fact that he was always hungry and distracted. And so he'd be like, yeah, yeah, go ahead, I'll tell you where to go. And then like 20 minutes later, I'd be like, bro, do I need to turn? He's like, oh, right. Um, yeah, you should have turned around 20 minutes ago. And I'm like, oh. There's another guy named Nathan. He was really good at giving directions as long as he had data on his phone. He was utterly dependent upon that blue line. Could he read a map? No, not at all but it would tell him, turn left now, and he could tell me that. He was good, but the problem was, this was the early days of Google Maps, and so reception was sketchy. And so he'd regularly be like, yep, go ahead, go ahead. My dad has died, I have no idea what to do. And I'm like, bro, look at the map. He's like, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. And so he was useless, and so there was finally another guy named Andy. He was probably the best of our navigators, except for he got his left and his right often confused regularly. He'd be like, go ahead. All right, now get into the left-hand lane. Okay, I'm in the left-hand lane. All right, now make this turn here. I make that turn. He goes, oh, that should have been a right. How, how do you get that wrong? And then he turns the phone over. Ah, that's better now. So like direction matters, right? The direction that things are going. And often when we think about heaven, we often think about going up. Right? We go up to heaven, we go up to be with Jesus, we go up to some magical, ethereal, spiritual space. But notice the direction here? It's down. Heaven is actually coming down to earth. We're not escaping up. God's coming down here. God's moving to dwell here. And it fits with this amazing theme of like how heaven and earth interact. And now we talked about this a year ago, and it's worth going through again. When we talk about heaven and earth, the Bible uses those very specifically. We think of heaven as another physical location that maybe we'll go to when we die, and we think of earth as this space here. But the Bible doesn't talk about heaven and earth in those terms. Earth is the space where we live. It's the space where we are under control. Heaven is not some other far off distant place. Heaven actually in many ways overlaps. Earth is like our space where we are in control. Heaven is the space where God is in control. It's God's zone, it's God's space, but they're not, they overlap, they interact. They're not just two separate places that never connect. And throughout scripture, the story of scripture is trying to figure out how heaven and earth can come together. In Genesis, it talked about how God wanted to dwell with us. And one of the ways that I regularly try to communicate the gospel, what is it that we believe, is it's the story of heaven and earth coming together. Using this chart, it's really simple. If we say, if God's space is heaven, we believe God is light, God is love, God is truth, God is peace. God is everything that should be good about this world. That's who God is because all life comes from him. 
And the challenges through our actions, through our corruption, through our failures, our world is not necessarily characterized by those things, right? Like as much as we wish, if we're really honest with our world, it seems to be characterized by a lot of brokenness, heaps of injustice, war, there's ugliness, there's suicide, there's bullying, there's depression, there's mental health issues. Our world seems to be characterized by things that are not godly, that are not life. And so the biblical word that we use to describe that is sin. And the story of the Bible is how sin and heaven, how they fight and how God's action is he's trying to move all of the sin and the brokenness out of the world so that heaven can finally come. And you see in the middle, there's always been spaces where that's overlapped. The Garden of Eden is talked about the space where God's space, heaven, overlaps with earth. If you remember the story of the tabernacle, when Israel had just first left Egypt, they set up this tabernacle, this small moving temple of God's presence. The tabernacle was designed to be like Eden. It was designed to be a space when you walked in, it was like heaven and earth overlapped, where God's rule became expressed and tangible and felt here on earth. The temple was the same thing. When they built the temple, they called for God's presence to come fill in. And that sacred space that they called the Holy of Holies was the place that fully overlapped. God's space and our space finally made one. And what's crazy is that in the Gospels, the crazy claim that the Gospel uh, writers are saying is that in Jesus now, not in a building, not in a garden, not in a temple, in Jesus, we now see what happens when heaven and earth overlap. We see what it looks like if God was really in control. When we look at Jesus, we can see and picture what heaven looks like when it interacts with earth, which is crazy, eh? It's this incredible, incredible promise. And so the idea is never that God was trying to get rid of earth or trying to move earth away or sweep it under the rug, but the redemption of our world is the hope of the gospel. So Romans talks about it like this, for the creation itself waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in the hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. N.T. Wright talks about it this way, the point about redemption or heaven it doesn't mean scrapping what's there and starting again from a clean slate, but rather it's the liberating of what has become enslaved. And so when we're talking about heaven, we're seeing that liberation of the world kind of finally coming through. Jesus talks about it this way in when he teaches us to pray. In the Lord's Prayer, you see it there. What does Jesus ask us to pray for? Let your kingdom come, let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven that God's space would finally interact with our space, that everything that God is, life, love, hope, truth, peace, justice, freedom, community, relationship, all those things would finally be found here on earth rather than the brokenness that we face. And so the hope of the gospel that's been moving towards the whole way is that those spaces are coming together. All of the brokenness is being pushed out. Revelation uses the language, it's destroying the destroyers of the earth. That's what's happening. God is pushing out everything that causes us pain and bringing his justice and his love until this is what we see in the passage. Finally, everything is made new. Heaven has come down. God now dwells here. 
our space is transformed by him. Does that make sense? Because that's quite a change. Um, Michael Bird talks about it this way. So rather than us going to some mystical fairy space where we're all kind of half-naked babies with tiny wings hanging out with a jacked Arnold Schwarzenegger with blonde hair, like rather than that, the hope of heaven that scripture points to, it's the promise is a heaven that descends to earth and an earth that receives the heavens so that both heaven and earth are transformed into something other than what they were before. Heaven and earth are changed into this new creation. Heaven doesn't swallow up earth and earth doesn't just simply absorb heaven. The earth is transfigured and transformed into a heavenly plane of existence. And the dividing line between heaven and earth is obliterated. Heaven becomes earth and earth becomes heavenly. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? This is what the hope that we're pushing towards is. And so everything you find from there is a description of what that looks like. So you could ask the question, what does it look like if God finally dwelt among us? The next two chapters of Revelation are giving you amazing imagination to try and picture that. It's all it's doing. What happens when God dwells with us? And he said, look, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with him. If I can be a quick literary nerd, there's something really cool. Anyone, literary nerds, anyone else? No, just me. Yes, you and me, we're gonna enjoy this. Everybody else, ignore it. Um, that word dwelling is this amazing word that's used throughout scripture. So again, it's this word that also means tabernacling, coming and being a part of us. So Eden, the Garden of Eden is described that way. God's dwelling place. The tabernacle is the place where God dwelt. He tabernacled with us. The temple was used in that tabernacle language. In the beginning passages of John, it says he was word and the word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. And then the word came and dwelt amongst us. He tabernacled with us. It's that same word the whole way through, which I, I just think is super cool how John brings that in. They will be his people and God himself will be them and be their God. That's a promise from the Old Testament that they heard in Deuteronomy that they were longing for for thousands of years. What does it look like when God finally dwells amongst us? And get this, get this. For thousands of years, they've been hoping that God will show up. The deepest longing of our heart is that the world will be made right, that the pain and the struggles that we face are gone. And when God finally comes, what is the first thing that he does? It's the first thing God does when he comes and dwells amongst us. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The first thing that God does when he dwells among us is he comforts us. First thing. And I know like the world can often think of God as being hateful or judgmental or wanting to just kick out all the bad people. But man, when you look at what God actually does, the first thing he longs to do is to give you a hug, to wipe away all the pain that you have carried your whole life and promise you a whole new world. This verse for me is always huge. Um, it's beautiful here. But as a pastor, I have this rare privilege where I get to be with families in often really difficult times. And I was with this family where the mom had died of cancer really young, left behind some young kids and the dad was left alone. And we're sitting in the hospital room and just the quiet of it. She's there, she's just passed. 
People are quietly crying. Man, to be able to read this verse in that, ho- in that hospital room. I'm never going to forget that. The meaning that it meant for that family and for me to hear that God will wipe the tears from their eyes. And that one day there will be no more death. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain for all of those things are being done away with. That is what God wants to do. God wants to bring life to this world. He wants to bring life to each and every one of us. The gospel is not a plan where God just forces you to be good so that he can feel better about his arbitrary rules. He's wanting to set us free to discover what life could be like. Sorry, I'm preaching. Um, It goes on to say, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. Um, Keister, who wrote this amazing commentary on Revelation, says, if you wanted to know the thesis statement, the main idea of Revelation, the main thing that the entire Bible is pointing towards, it's that phrase. If you wanted to describe the gospel in one sentence, I would say God is saying, I will make all things new. That's the God that we worship. That's the gospel we're excited about. That's the heaven that we are looking forward to when God has made everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. Again, sorry to be a literary nerd, same language that Jesus used when he was on the cross. When he bore the sin and the pain of the entire world and he gave his last breath, Jesus cried out, it is done. And now God echoes those words again as everything is healed and redeemed. Alpha and Omega, The very first thing that describes God in the beginning of Revelation is he says, I am Alpha and Omega. Right here at the very end of the book, he comes forward and says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. How amazing that the needy have their needs met by God himself in this space. The deep desires that we crave, the anxieties that we carry around within us, the longings of our heart that forever go unmet. How beautiful to know that one day we will stand face to face before our creator and he will give us what we need. How good is God? How good? Those who are victorious will inherit all this. Now remember when Revelation says victorious, it's not talking about amazing conquerors. It's not talking about emperors. It's not talking about war heroes and generals. Who's the first person who conquered? Jesus. How did he conquer? By giving up his life. Who are the next people who conquer? The martyrs. How did they conquer? By just holding true to what God said, despite what the world around them looked like. Despite how transformed their city looked, they don't know. A lot of them died without ever seeing the gospel move or shake their city. Yet they are victorious. Often we think that we have this myth of being triumphant and that in order for God to love us, we have to find our way forward and be important and make a change. Who are the ones who are victorious? The ones who just cling on to Jesus saying, God, help me. To them, they inherit life. And finally, I will be their God and they will be my children. Family. Family. In a society that is becoming increasingly isolated, where we all go back to our homes behind our fences and close our doors and turn on our TVs and live in our own personally curated tech world, there's this promise of family, real family, 
God's family. That is where we are headed. You will not be alone in this space. You will be known and you will be able to know others and you will be loved. Man, if we could rediscover what family looks like. So then finally, it it does do this left turn, which for modern readers feels incredibly uncomfortable, um, where it talks about, here we go, where it talks about like the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic, arts, idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, I don't want to spend heaps of time on this because I talked a lot about this in the previous weeks. If you want to know what's going on here, go back a couple of weeks ago and listen to our discussion on hell. The main thing you need to know is that image. God is not willy-nilly just kicking out the people he doesn't like. God is trying to bring life to the world, and he offers it up to everyone. And he calls us all into this new life. But some people do not want God. And that's fine. God respects that. And for those who do not want God, there's a place where they moved out. Go listen to the hell conversation. It's nuanced, it's complicated, but that's what's happening there. The challenge is, so what? Right? Like, that's cool. If you're a Christian, you can think about that and be like, that's nice. That's nice. Helps me feel better. I guess I can think about that when I go to sleep or I'm having a hard time. But again, if we're, if we're honest, I think particularly for us in modern day contexts, it's really hard for us to engage with a the theology of heaven and I think ground into something exciting for us or something meaningful. Because for particularly those of us in my generation, it's really hard to think about a whole nother world when we're having trouble thinking about tomorrow. It's really hard to be excited about some future nirvana place that we're not sure we're ever going to get to when tomorrow we might run out of cash when tomorrow we're going to be hitting another anxiety attack and we don't know what to do about it. And I think that's one of the huge challenges. And we think, oh, it's just this promise thing later on. But what if we look at it differently? What if it's not just like, hey, you're going to get there to this end point. What if there's a way that it affects and changes the way that we act now? Keister talks about it. Rather than all of Revelations of passages being uh, about just some perfect description about some place you're going to go to when you die. He says this passage can better be seen as an invitation, as a vision of the future to which God calls all of us. The sweeping views of judgment warn about the devastating consequences of the reign of the beast. And the expansive visions of redemption promise a glorious future under the reign of God. Both options remain open in Revelation. The question is, How are we going to respond to this invitation? The story of the gospel is God is bringing life. He's bringing renewal. How are we going to respond to that? And will that vision actually change our lives now? I think it comes down to a question of hope. I think today, uh, hope is a complicated concept. Maybe uh, 50 years ago, we would have thought everything's kind of getting better and moving forward and life was going to be perfect. But if we're honest, some of us may be a little bit skeptical of that idea now. Like what? The internet, the internet was supposed to connect us all, right? It was supposed to make us into one perfect new humanity where we all love each other. And then the internet happened and then YouTube comments showed up. And you're like, oh, wait, it doesn't connect us. It just turns us into vile human beings who say terrible things to one another. Or um, check this out. This, this cracks me up. Uh, f- 
Mark Zuckerberg, he promised with Facebook and, and the guy who did with Twitter, he didn't make Twitter, but Twitter had these ideas that we can now have conversations together. We can learn from one another and engage with one another. This image is fascinating. Researchers looked at Twitter users' contacts. So they looked at the people that they retweeted, the people that they mentioned, the people that they engaged with, to try and see how much engagement between different kinds of people was happening. And so if you were like, so red and blue, if red is conservative and blue is more progressive, if you were red and you engaged with a Twitter, uh, another conservative, it drew a red line to that person. And if you engaged with a liberal or progressive, it drew a line to that person. What they found is very few people from the camps engaged with one another. There's like, I don't know, a handful of lines that actually cross the gap. What Twitter and Facebook have turned us into is these echo chambers where we only engage with people who are like us, where we only listen to the voices who are people that are like us, and we never have to engage with the evil unbelievers from the other side. And we can live in this amazing, perfect world and then hate everyone who doesn't think like us. If you look at the life online, that's how it interacts, right? So Twitter was supposed to connect us, but instead it did that. Um, I was at the bookstore the other day at Paper Plus, and I just I like looking and seeing what's there. And I saw this wall, which I would like to term the freakout wall. It was the non-fiction non section of the wall. And I just looked at the books that were facing me, not like the back of the covers, the books that were facing me. It's fascinating. So the first one was called Banking Bad, which talks about how all of our financial institutions are corrupt and falling apart and the world economy is gonna collapse soon. Yay. Um, the next one uh, was uh, Me Too stories from the Australian movement. So our financial system's corrupt and it's about to fail. Me Too, look, all of our men are dirtbags and are harassing women. Yay, right? Um, the next one that it showed, Edward Snowden, wow, all of our governments are spying on us, and in, if you have your phone on, Russia knows what you're saying all the time 24-7. Cool, that makes me feel better about life. Uh, the next one that was up there was uh, one called Losing Earth, the decade we could have stopped climate change. Oh, it's a good, another good uplifting uh, title, very hopeful. Another one was The Final Energy Crisis. We are gonna run out of oil and all of our economies are gonna collapse. I looked at this wall and I was like, well, that's a hopeful vision of the future, isn't it? That makes me feel real good about life. And my guess is that if you looked at uh, news articles, news headlines, almost all of them would just be the freak out wall where everything is going terrible and there's nothing we can do about it. So just have as much fun as you can have now. Live up, spend all your money now. Sorry kids, you're gonna have to figure out your own thing. Try and die as happy as you can. That's like the best we can hope for, right? But what if there was another story we could hold on to? What if there was another vision of society that could give us hope? Not a society where the earth is just going to die and be passed away and it's going to forever going to fall apart. What if there was a world where the way that we lived was in harmony with our environment? What if there was a world where our energy needs and the way we need to move and go about actually fits sustainably within our world and within creation? Me too. What if there was a world where we could relate to one another well without abusing one another? without taking advantage of one another? Banking bad, what if, what if there's a world where, where jobs and business could be used to grow societies rather than abuse them? 
What if businesses could be places that lift people out and give them agency and hope and a vision for the future rather than one that just takes as much money as it can to put it in shareholders' profits? What if there was another way to live? The Christian vision for that hope has been called heaven. It's a different script that we can live towards. And why does heaven matter? Even if it's long way off, because God is working now to bring that here. And here's what's most crazy, is that I believe we as Christians in a world that is freaking out with very little hope and anxiety and terror and panic attacks at all the problems that are facing us, what if a vision of Jesus in heaven could make us a people of hope? What if we could begin to creatively imagine what would it look like if God dwelt among us? What would Papamoa look like if God dwelt here? If God's kingdom was here, how different would our neighborhood look? How different would our schools look in the schools and our education facilities? How different would they look if God himself dwelt there to make sure every child was honored and every resource was used well and all the teachers were supported and brought together? What would our businesses look like if our business leaders got together and said, how can we use our finances and our ideas to grow people and to establish welfare and well-being and shalom in our area? What would it look like for parents to look at their children not as a tool or something to be used or a way to satisfy yourself, but as a way to grow and nurture the next generation? What if there was another way to live? What if there was another vision of the future? What if we could talk about a world filled with hope? Because those are real problems. They are. I'm not discounting them. Those are real things that we have to face. But as Christians, I think we move forward with faith because we know that God is already doing something about it. Because we know the end story where he's going towards. Directions matter. Where you're going changes how you interact now. Where you're gonna end up changes the direction that you walk now. And what if we walked around with a vision of heaven coming to earth and our framework, our lenses that we looked with everything saw the potential for the kingdom of God there? That's a different world. That is a church I would love to be a part of. A church that is relentlessly honest about the problems we face, but unashamedly naive and hopeful about what God could do. Oh, I'd love to be a part of that community, wouldn't you? Heaven is not just some pie-in-the-sky vision for what will happen later. One day it will come through. God will renew. All things will be made new. But now, today, His Spirit is at work. And he offers us the beginning, the first taste of that movement. And so what I want us to do right now is to actually imagine, to stop and imagine in your life and in your context, can we take a few minutes to pause and think, how would your life and your world look different if God dwelt there? How would your life look different if heaven came? to earth where you are. What would you do different? How would you imagine your life and your world or your family to be different if God dwelt with you? Just imagine, just for a second, just take a moment to pause and think about it. Imagine your context flooded with the life 
and the presence of God. Just take a few minutes. Just imagine your context now. Today I want to encourage you because our God is a God of hope. That world that you imagined, that life that you imagined, God is wanting to work to bring it to be now. God is wanting to start that here and now through Jesus in your life. That's the gospel. Heaven is coming to earth, Jesus is bringing it, and it's starting here today with you, and God will complete it when he returns. Would you stand with me as we pray?